enjoy some more discussion of eternal life in John 10 and Matthew 19. What has God done for me lately? What has God done for you? What do you have from God that you can say is yours? Well, if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, a great deal. God has done a great deal for you because of Jesus Christ, because of his salvation work, and because of your uh, eternal life that he's given you. In fact, he's given you uh, a number of things that you can't earn or deserve that are God's grace to you that you wouldn't know unless he told you, like he made you his child and today, in the study of the riches of divine grace, we're continuing to discuss what happens in the fact that we are born again, and that we have this new birth, this new life in God, and we're talking about the fact that he gave us eternal life. In the new birth, we say you're born again, you are sons of God, you're a new creation, you have been adopted into the beloved and therefore heirs of God, and now we're talking about the fact that you have eternal life, not that you look forward to dying, well, no one does, but going to heaven to have eternal life, but that you have eternal life here and now, which is a difficult thing to, to grasp in some ways because of our limitations, because we walk by faith and not by sight. Because part of, well, the overwhelming majority of your eternal life experience will be face-to-face -face with God, with God the Son. You'll see him as he is. You'll be glorified. You'll be separated from any sin nature. I believe the eternal state is such that you cannot commit personal sin. You'll be an, an immortal body that inherits eternity, and it cannot be de de degraded. And what you're capable of now is not what you'll be capable of then in terms of personal sin. And that's the, that's the eschatological sense that we talk about eternal life. Well, one of our favorite discourses on eternal life is when Jesus says he is the good shepherd um, in John chapter 10. John 10, he's the, he's the door to the sheep and he's the good shepherd, the good shepherd discourse of John chapter 10, which we looked at a little bit last time. I have to make a correction on something that I said about that, and it happens once every 10 years or so. Or every day, and I just don't say anything about it. Um, but in verse 10 is one of our favorite verses. I'm going to do the whole chapter today, but let's just look at the one verse. He says in verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I translated this into English, and somehow I missed the third person plural. And I said, you may have life and have it abundantly. And actually, it's that they may have life, that they may have life and I even misspelled it there too, and that they may have it abundantly. So let, let me let this sink in. It's anybody who believes in Christ, those that he's coming to offer the kingdom to in his uh, ministry, but in, in an eternal sense, uh, the eternal life that will characterize those who are possessors of the kingdom. The thief does not come except, he says, so that he may steal and slaughter and destroy. I came in contrast to the thief that comes in through the wrong door, that jumps the fence. I came in, unlike the wolf, since I'm the good shepherd, I came so that they may have life and that abundantly they may have it. 
I think this is a magnificent theme verse for thinking about having eternal life, thinking about the fact that I've trusted in Christ, thinking about that Jesus came to die for my sins. This verse is one to memorize and take with you, and it's abominable that I said you may have life, even though that's the correct application. It is true that, that you may have life, but Jesus said they may have life. So I want to be careful where I need to be careful. And uh, I've taught Greek here enough that one of you said, hey, isn't that a third-person plural? And I said, yes, I, miss, I missed it and when I was uh, trying to, to translate uh, fast. So my apologies, and um, thank you for catching the third-person uh, <laughs> third plural there. That was awesome. All right, in John 10, verses 1 through 24, you have the door and the shepherd metaphors, the door and the shepherd illustrations Jesus makes. In a context in John as he's presenting the response of the nation to Jesus' offer of himself. And it isn't so emphatic in John that he's offering the kingdom, although he is. It's more emphatic that he's offering a relationship with God the Father, which can only be had through him. Remember, John is the gospel of John 14, 6. We all know I, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That classic summary in the upper room discourse of we don't know the way. How can you say we know the way? I'll tell you the way to the Father. I am the only way. Well, in John 10, it's part of the big picture in chapters 5 through uh, 12-ish, where John is presenting a national rejection of Jesus by the majority and especially the leadership and a remnant reception of the Lord Jesus. And the darkness did not overcome the light. The darkness did not overcome the light. The darkness did not comprehend the light. The light shines in the darkness in chapter 1, and Jesus Christ is offering this eternal life to the world. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the light of men. So let me just work through a little bit with you this passage that has that awesome verse that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly to understand the culture that we're in in part as an illustration. Just one second. that we can hear me uh, okay let's pray <laughs> the context is the national rejection of Israel with a remnant reception of him and it's a magnificent passage to think through because of the comparison of the time in which Jesus offered himself and therefore God the Father to the nation of Israel and their reception or rejection and how it is with us. We have so much to gain in terms of our discipling ministry of making disciples of the nations by seeing how Jesus was received. And it's so very applicable because he was in general rejected. The most important human being ever born, the only sinless human being ever born, the only person that never had any sins of his own, 
The only person who every time he spoke, it was the absolute truth, take it to the bank no matter what, listen to everything he said and write it down. The only one who could do the things that he could do. The only one empowered by the Holy Spirit in his day, the way he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The only one who could say, I made all this, I hold all this together by the word of my power, I have incarnated into this. And it's not a contradiction, it's all true at the same time. The unique person of the universe, the celebrity that is the focus of our attention and the captivator of our hearts, of our desires, of our hopes, our destiny, the Lord Jesus Christ, was basically rejected by the people that he belonged to. He was rejected by his own. And the way they did it largely was through authority and expertise. It's important to notice that too. Jesus was not rejected by the masses. The masses embraced the ministry of John the Baptist, and John's ministry was to point to Jesus. The masses had an overwhelming response to the Lord Jesus, and as the masses are, the the aggregate intelligence of the organization goes down the larger the organization gets. The bigger it is, the dumber it gets. It's just how we are. We have this leveling effect of mobs, and so eventually it became about bread and circuses. It was to see miracles. Jesus said, you came out to see a miracle, but the miracle is to tell you to listen to the message, to the word of life that I have for you to know God the Father. And they didn't understand, they couldn't understand the real miracle was his offer of eternal life through his blood on the cross. But that's what he did. That's what he offered. But the masses generally did not reject Jesus until the leadership, because of their expertise, their authority, and their deception, they thought they knew, but they didn't. They thought they had a grasp on things, but they were wrong. They were very cocky in their expertise, And it doesn't mean that we don't believe in authority or expertise. It means that we hold all things up to the light of the fear of the Lord. And we say that's where the real authority is. And so we study and we learn and research and we become an authority. We become an expert on something in the fear of the Lord, recognizing he is the real authority. And those that did that with the things of God received him. Those that feared God, that knew God through what Moses has said, received a greater revelation than Moses through Jesus Christ. But that's the context of John 10, is it's in his offer of eternal life to a people who are basically rejecting him because the leadership is rejecting him because of their, they've been deceived. And again, I think there are many parallels to what Jesus experienced in his day and to us in our day in all ages. There is always going to be satanic deception of the nations, and that deception is going to be reinforced, especially in the authorities, in the people with the power who have the expertise. And they're going to know a lot of things, and some of the things they know aren't true, and they cloud them from seeing the truth. And this is the problem that calls for what I call Christian skepticism or the benefit of doubt. Let God be true, though every man a liar kind of stuff. So imagine you're in Israel on the day in which Jesus was offering eternal life, a relationship with God the Father through himself. Imagine, I'm going to try to stand very still and be very articulate from a completely motionless motionless, uh, posture. Imagine you're you're in Israel in that day, in Judea, and there uh, there is that expertise that's rejecting the only way to have a relationship with God and truly the only interpretation of all their ritual. The the only interpretation of all that they're doing is before them saying, you can have a relationship with the Father through me. Imagine 
that you're in Israel in that day. It's a new word you haven't heard before. It's a new face you haven't seen. And the people in the robes with the long beards and the, and the, the high position, the rabbi, the great ones, they're saying, uh, 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 and they're denying, they're rejecting, they're with their own issues, they're saying no to him. Where do you stand? It's easy to see how all of us would be swept up in the popular acceptance of the established authorities. And this new message would be very challenging because here's the thing. You can't go by your culture. You couldn't go by culture in the first century. If you did, you would go to the lake of fire because the only one who can save you from the lake of fire is not being received by the culture. You have to, you have to let God speak. You have to say, is this true based on who God is and what he said? And Jesus gave them plenty of empirical evidence in the miracles and then the message. And notice all through John, it's a big theme in John. He, doesn't, he says, I'm not coming to you with my message. I'm not preaching me. I'm preaching my Father. I'm coming with the message I heard from him. The Spirit isn't going to speak for himself, but he's going to speak what he hears from the Father. He's, we, are, we are coming to the world, not from ourselves, but from God the Father, through the Son and the power of the Spirit. It's not about us. Jesus modeled that for us. So in verses 1 through 6, you have the introduction of the sheep door image, the door to the sheep. And we read this a little last time. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way as a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So the way you get into the fold is established. And he's saying there's only one way. And there are under shepherds, but they go through the right door. And so you listen to those that have come through the door, like the one writing these words would be John, one of Jesus' shepherds that he's under shepherds that he sent. So it's, it's about protocol, and the protocol is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. But when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. This is Jesus' explanation of the national, especially among the leadership, rejection of his message and therefore of God the Father. They're rejecting me and therefore a relationship with the Father because they're not shepherds and they're leading, but they're leading you astray and you need to listen to me. It's very, as we said last time, it's very branded this is a very powerful message for our day because Christianity's offense to this culture is its exclusivity only in Christ, only to the real God who is there, not the made-up stuff that the pagans have done through the history, through, through the centuries, but the one God who exists eternally as three persons. And everything else can be explained as a, as a, 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 a counterfeit or as a false memory or a, the way pagan, paganism and unbelief affects the human mind from the very beginnings of civilization after the flood in Genesis 9 and 10 and 11. 
we see that everything that is not the Father through the Son to the Son to the Father through the Son is is a counterfeit. It's a pretender. It's a false shepherd, including the people that should have been the most aware of the messianic hope, of the fulfillment in Christ and the person of Christ of all of their ritual, all of their instruction. In fact, Jesus says to fulfill the entire law. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. I believe that studying the Bible is one method of validation of the Bible because it says in certain places these things are hard to understand. One of the most difficult places in the Gospels is John chapter 6. Metaphorically eating blood and drinking, uh, eating, eating flesh and drinking blood. And I can't stomach that, <laughs> pardon the pun, I can't stomach that figure of speech. And so many left Jesus when he said this. It's difficult to challenge Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, remember 3.16 because John 3.16, and 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathe. And 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says Paul is hard to understand in place. They pervert Paul's scriptures like they do the rest in which some things are hard to understand. Peter tells us two things. Paul's difficult to read and understand and for him and that it gets confused. It gets misconstrued by those uh, who are false teachers. And so if you're reading and working with Paul and saying, what's the pronoun referent here? What's the, what's the sense he has and what, what's the reference he's, he's making? You're supposed to, to work it. It's not just casual. It's not follow the plot line of a 30-minute sitcom, right? It's actually engaged. It's involved. It's, you have to think it through and follow the context. So Jesus says uh, these words about false teachers and true teachers, false shepherds and true shepherds. The, the shepherd is a good shepherd. The false shepherd is a thief and a liar. <laughs> and, um, and in verse 6, John narrates that he wasn't well understood. Now, to make it very explicit about who are the... You, you're thinking Jesus is saying he's the good shepherd that has entered through the door of the sheep. And um, what's that? It's a test, yeah. Call to mind, therefore I have hope. You work that? I have a strong voice, but I can't reach the people in Houston or wherever. That's so. It would, but I'll just pull this thing out and we'll do it. Do it off the pulpit. Joel just thinks he can go camping. <laughs> In verses 7 through 10, he makes it explicit that he's talking about uh, himself not as one of the shepherds that's coming into the right door and the doorkeeper. He says, he breaks your whole thought because he's like he's comparing himself to the false teachers. And he is, but then he says, I'm the door. If you want to enter the sheepfold and be part of the flock, you can only get through me. And if you want to be one of the shepherds that leads the sheep out into their pasture, then they have to come through me. And it's branded. We're going to try this one. Oh, this is different. Okay. I stick this on my, my ear. <laughs> I did just put it on backwards. 
All right. Have you ever played with a microphone? It's the most, it's so fun. Play with microphones. And uh, little kids want to do it. And um, can you hear me through the thing? Okay. So I'll also try to stand still because you never know what's going to happen. But he says that he is not just one of the shepherds. He will be the good shepherd in a minute. But he starts with, I'm the door. I'm the access point. So it isn't just that uh, you're following the false shepherd. It's that there is a way into this sheepfold that identifies the correct shepherds, and it is only through me. It's really neat if you think about the illustration that he's making. I'm the good shepherd. Um, Wait, verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Now, the sheep are actually those that belong to God. Those who actually had believed Moses, who were anticipating Messiah. Simeon and Anna, the remnant of Israel who actually were regenerate, who had believed. They're the sheep and they don't follow the false teachers. So when the whole nation follows the false teachers, you kind of have to say, oh, the remnant of Israel isn't a big group. It's small. It's always going to be that way with the concept of the remnant. That's why it's called the remnant. And that's a parallel for our day. There are lots of people in church that aren't in Christ. The only way to be in Christ is not to do good works, but to trust in Jesus as your Savior and receive the regeneration that comes only by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, upon that saving faith. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, is, is, I'm sorry, I'm still in verse 9. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So he is contrasting himself as a shepherd with the false teachers, but he also identifies himself as the door. And I have to confess to you, reading through this as a casual reader, I always, I'm always like, he's doubling his metaphor. I'm just reading along, he says he's the door, and then the next verse, he says, I'm the, she- I'm the good shepherd. Well, are you the door? Are you the good shepherd? And what you have to do with that is you, you have two choices. You could say Jesus isn't a very good, good rhetorician there. He's like he's mixing his metaphors. And so, see, this is an evidence that the Bible is, you know, it's just. Or you can say God is true, though every man a liar. He says it this way. I better figure it out. I better understand what he's doing. And guess where the wealth is? Guess where the riches are? Guess where the, where the treasure chest is? It's in saying he starts with an expectation that you would think he's calling himself the good shepherd. And then he switches. I'm the door. I'm the only way in. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one for you to follow. But he's also the door. And so the whole thing is branded. Did anybody here want to be the door? Sorry, positions taken. Did anyone here want to be the good shepherd? Sorry, the positions taken. Do you know what shepherd is in, uh, in Latin? Pastor. Pastor. It means shepherd in Latin. We're just speaking Latin. Do you know what shepherd is in Hebrew? Roeh. It's just, it just means someone that's tending the flock. And the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep is the Lord Jesus. And everybody that shepherds in the pattern of Jesus or under him, I call us like sheep dogs. We're border collies. We're working for the great shepherd. Those of us that are pastors by gift, according to Ephesians 4.11, I consider that that's one, one at least thing that God has made me is to pastor and teach. 
That idea of the shepherd is under him and the sense in which we give our lives for the sheep, there is a self-sacrifice. There is supposed to be this sense of self-sacrifice as Christians that we love one another and we don't consider ourselves what we consider the other. But nobody ever died for you to give you eternal life but Jesus. And that's what he's saying here in the gospel offer. He's saying the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. David is a pattern of Jesus in this way. He's a good shepherd because he was willing to put his life on the line to protect his father's flock. When the lion or the bear came to steal one of my father's flock, I killed it. That's a, that's a life and death move to make their uh, shepherd boy David, seventh son of Jesse. You put your life on the line when you went after that lion and he says, seized him by his beard and struck him. My question that I want to ask in terms of my interest in action sequences, I love action. I love the idea of the action sequences in the Bible. When you struck him by his beard, I think I have a good, pretty good grasp of that. He's got the lion's mane. He's holding him and he's struck. That sounds like an Asiatic male lion. Did you strike him with a stick as a shepherd and it was just such a powerful strike that it, that it, killed him because he says he killed the lion and the bear or were you using your sling with a rock in it so that you had a sling in in the function of a club because he's holding it that's the picture of David I mean this is very uh up close and personal to this lion and later to this bear that he was able to defeat them no question empowered by God to do it no question but still David is putting his life on the line just for these little, little sheep. And this is in an actual shepherd. Jesus talking about you as his sheep. He died for your sins. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner, this is in Jesus as the good shepherd in verses 11 through 18, is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So the wolf comes in and the shepherd is no longer there to protect them. Now, we understand the feeding function of a shepherd. Before, when he talked about that he comes in to get them and leads them out to to pasture, this is to feed them. It's out of the safety where there isn't food into the danger where there is food. That's how you would, I guess, tend flocks. Maybe when you built your sheepfold, there was some grass there at first, but eventually there's not grass there anymore. So you got to lead them out to where the good grass is, like Psalm 23 says. And out there where he leads you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, there is the valley of the shadow of death. And you won't fear that because he's with you. See, we are his sheep and he is our shepherd. And so now we're out pasturing the flock and I'm leading them so that they can eat. So I'm feeding them. But the good shepherd has a third leg of the stool of the job of a shepherd. He doesn't run away when there's a a threat. He gets kinetic. He doesn't run away. He stands and fights. And that's the protection factor. He leads them, he feeds them, and he protects them. And the reason I contend David is such a master with a sling, with one shot, one kill at Ephes Damim in the battle of the Valley of Elah with Goliath, the reason he is victorious, in part, of course, God is working in him, but God's always been working in him. Ever since he received the Holy Spirit, we read in 1 Samuel 16. And so I believe David is a quality marksman with a sling because he's a quality shepherd obeying his father and doing his very best. I think he practices 
constantly. I think it's probably very monotonous to be a shepherd. And I think he's out there doing his job and he's refining his craft. And as we say, sharpening the saw, he's getting better and better at protecting his sheep because it's one of the jobs of a shepherd. So the shepherd doesn't just have a staff to guide them along. doesn't just have a rod to make the necessary corrections. The shepherd has a sling because he has to protect his sheep. And doing that puts his life on the line when the wolf comes. Verse 13 says that the hired hand flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. The context, Israel rejecting the Messiah, a remnant receiving the Messiah. The sheep are the remnant that belong to him and they know him. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will bear my, hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Anticipating the time in which we live. This side of Ephesians 2 where Paul explains that the church, the new man in Christ is composed of Jew and Greek. One new man. The body of Christ. We call ecclesia, the church. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. The themes that he's developing, he's weaving through here are the self-sacrifice as the shepherd. For the Father's work, the Father put me out here as the, the shepherd and I do it even to the point of death. The Father loves me because I do what he sent me to do, including lay down my life. That he is the good shepherd for them and that he does it. And that the sheep that are his know him. These are the themes that he keeps going back. And John will often circulate through the themes and keep bringing them back and refreshing them. Almost like a stir fry type type thing. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Anticipating his death for our sins and the resurrection. Now, in this gospel, this narrative that John is telling in his portrayal of the theological account of the life of Christ, or life and ministry of Christ, as I might characterize John different from the other gospels, in this narrative, he will actually die for our sins, and before dying physically, he will say, to tell us die, it is finished in the past with eternal results. But here, he anticipates this death by saying, I'm going to die and give my life for my sheep, My father will love me because I do this. My father will love me because I do this. And I'll take my life back again. He knows about his death and resurrection. This is something you know about too. And you have this in common with Jesus. You are going to live in this present world darkness. That is tribulation for the church since the day of Pentecost. We have been under persecution. The apostle Paul has taken up a collection in his generation for the poor saints in Jerusalem who are under such heavy economic and social and governmental pressure for trusting in Christ as their Savior. In the first century, we've been under persecution ever since. Our time of tribulation is now. It's not Jacob's trouble. This is the the time of our suffering for our Savior. But we know that after a life of rejection, 
of suffering for the gospel, of proclaiming Christ, of loving God and trusting him and walking by faith, not by sight. We know that the conclusion is our resurrection. And Jesus Christ knew this as well. He knew as he went and endured the suffering at the hands of sinners that he endured, that he was going to be resurrected. And it was the hope that was set before him, his resurrection and exaltation and glory. And we read about this as an example for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is that your pattern is Jesus. He pioneered this Christian life in the power of the Spirit that you're living in now. And he wants you to look at him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He could endure even the death of the cross and disregard the humiliation of it because of what he was looking at, the joy that was set before him. And some of you cannot hear it. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ was what? What was the joy set before him? Don't get mystical and say it was me. He was rejoicing that he would have me as his, as his own. That's not the joy. It's fine, but it's not the joy. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, is that he has sat down at the right hand of the Father, that he has gone through humiliation to glory, and the path to glory and exaltation was that self emptying before the Father. God, you have your way. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Paul is speaking on this in Philippians 2. And for this reason, he was also exalted and given a name above every name for the reason of his humbling. What I'm saying is that you are in a pattern just like him. You have a joy he has told you of that is set before you. You have to endure reviling and all that you have to endure at the hands of sinners. And as the outcome of this, you will be exalted in God's time. Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God so that he'll promote you at the proper time, casting your cares on him, for he cares for you. So Jesus has much to say about your life and mine by way of his pattern. In verses 19 through 21, the reception of the message uh, was not great. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Notice the way John co-locates the two two views, the two statements by the remnant. These are not the works, or the works, these are not the words of the person that is demon possessed, and these are not the works, the opening the eyes of the blind of one who's demons. These are the things of God opening our eyes. These are the things of God, the words of the good shepherd offering his life for his sheep. So in verse 22 and following, you have the place where John most explicitly shows Jesus encountering the question and answering it about who he is. In verse 22, at that time, the feast of the dedication. Now this is apparently... At the, at the time, relatively speaking, is a few weeks later, you have Hanukkah. You have the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And people wonder about this because this happened after, um, after the events of Malachi, after Malachi closed the Old Testament. The Feast of Dedication is something that happened in the, um, the second century B.C. in the, in the, in the intertestamental period. And uh, it has to do with uh, Judas Maccabeus and this um, this event that the, there was a miracle that God allowed the temple uh, oil to burn. And so there's this, this celebration. And, and it's important to know this, that Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. 
It's not, uh, it's <laughs> the Christ celebrated Hanukkah, the Christ. So the question is, is it Christian? See what I'm saying? But Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. You say, well, that was for the age of Israel, which is a difficult thing to say since it is not part of the revelation of the Old Testament. It's part of the works of God in history that the nation celebrated by tradition. And Jesus is celebrating it here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. Hanukkah is in December, as you all know. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah, if you are the anointed one, translated in Greek, the Christ, written by John in Greek. If you are the Christos, then tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what I call the competency of the good shepherd. He is such a good shepherd that when he gives eternal life to his sheep, nothing can take them out of his hand. Now, what is eternal life in John 17? Same gospel a few chapters later. Eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That is John 17, 3, his description of eternal life. Notice the way he describes eternal life here. I give eternal life to these sheep that are his, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I am of the perhaps subset of Christianity. I'm of the small group that actually believe eternal life is eternal. I don't think this is something that you give yourself and it's not something you take away from yourself. It's something God has given you and nothing will snatch you. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So now we have multiple layers of shepherding. He's got you. If you have him, bigger deal is that he's got you. And this is your key passage if you want to hear from Jesus himself on what we call eternal security. I know. But that would mean once saved, always saved. My favorite response to the biblical doctrine, not the made-up doctrine, the biblical doctrine of eternal security. And those who are wondering about Calvinism versus Arminianism, this is where I sound a whole lot like a Calvinist. Because this is something that God did. You didn't do it. It's something that he did to give you his life. And it's something he secures. And your assurance of eternal life, never in the scriptures are you assured of your eternal life by your good works. You didn't work to be saved. You don't work to sustain yourself. Your assurance is God's promise. It is his competency. Notice I am not super competent in this passage. I'm a sheep. I preserve myself in my shepherd's hand. Nope, sheep don't. I am a sheep in the illustration, and he holds on to me. Praise God for his security. What do you do with this doctrine? Well, this is what people think that are are more Arminian bent or or Wesleyan bent. They'll say that this is license for you to just live any kind of way you want to live. This is just you can do whatever you feel like and, 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 and God will still save you in the end. And there's no, uh, there's no works for you to do or something. And, if, and we'll say, what, if you mean by 
by works, you mean justification to receive the declaration of God's righteousness to your account, there's no works. If you mean the reception of eternal life, that's right. It's all the work of Christ. You don't do any work. If, we, if you mean by uh, the, the work that God did that you don't do that God did, that's exactly what we're saying. And we include with that God securing you, him holding you in his grasp. If you mean the works that God has called you to do, that he put his spirit in your heart to abide forever to make you able to do, the things that he says he wants from you that you have to choose to do, these are not things that secure your eternal life. They're things that you live out. You work out that salvation with fear and trembling. They're the life that you're living. It's the enjoyment of the eternal life. Jesus finishes by stinging their nose a little bit. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And he answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They almost have it, don't they? They've almost got that he's really a man. And he's saying he's really God. But what are they doing with that message? They're rejecting it. Well, that can't, we know that can't be so. This happens when we know our theology, but we won't go with the Bible. When the Bible will not correct your theology, you, you might find yourself separated from God in this case. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, your gods, your Elohim? If he called them gods, translate correctly my Bible with a little g, if he called them gods... To whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken. You, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. So it, there are ways that this language has been used in the scriptures, right? But they get the message. He's emphasizing that I could be meaning a different meaning of what the son of God is because it calls you gods, calls you sons of God. But he is, they have understood him, that he is saying he's God in the flesh. He's the same Essence is the Father. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Notice, you need to listen to me because of where I'm coming from. I've done enough demonstrations for you to know. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So you have a positive reception from the remnant in verses 40 through 42. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. He was staying there, and many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, many believed in him there. John doesn't leave us with his narration of just the rejection by the leadership. He takes us beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing and identifies the message of Jesus as the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, the door of the sheep, identifies him with the baptism of John. So they're trying to kill him, and everything he says to be explicit with them makes them want to kill him more. And we're headed off to the races to John 11 with the death and resurrection or resuscitation, if you will, of Lazarus and the I am the life. 
I'm the resurrection and the life passage. One way to structure and understand the gospel of John is the I am passages. He says, I am, I am, I am, because he's identifying himself as the God of, of uh, Exodus 3. Tell them that I am sent you, which we have as a modification of the verb to be, hayah, in Yahweh. Yahweh comes out of the verb hayah. There was a popular uh, meme, internet little thing floating around by some mystic lady in Texas that said that the, ver- the, the name Yahweh, the, the sacred name of God in Israel, is uh, breathing. It's exhaling and inhaling. You exhale, yah, and you inhale, ha, or you inhale, yah. Don't you inhale? Isn't that what you say when you inhale? Yeah. Isn't that how you inhale? Like nobody does? But there's this whole mystical thing about God's name is for breathing. And that's why we don't know how to pronounce it because you can't really pronounce a breath. And it even said something idiotic like um, uh, English speakers like vowels. We have a punch on for vowels. So we've got to figure out the vowels of God's name. This is uh, perhaps trivial, but I don't really think it is. This is an insanity. We got the whole idea of vowels from God who invented language. Vowels is a Latin word from vocalis. It means voice. The vowel of a syllable is the voice of the syllable. You can't say a consonant without a vowel. Try it. Try to say the T syllable without a, a vowel. You can't. You say T. T. Right? You have to say a vowel. It's the only way language works. So this idea of this insanity, I should show you the little meme, of, uh, of that Yahweh's name comes from babies breathing or something. It's not. It has nothing to do with it. We actually have a, a revelation from God on why he calls himself this the self-existing being, the one who is, and no one makes it so. The verb is hayah, to be. And the nominalization of it in the sacred name of God is the one who is Yahweh. He is, and no one makes it so. And you and I are derivative, and he is not. Our existence derives from his. He made us. He makes it so. He has nothing powering him. He is the eternal God. And that is something to ponder the one who has no beginning, who has nothing adding to his energy. You have to eat energy. You have to, 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 to take food and water to gain energy and live. There's nothing powering the reaction that is God's existence. It just is. And he always has been. He has been from eternity past. And he's the one who is speaking to them in the flesh of mankind, which he designed and sustains. And that's the mystery of this gospel. It's also the secret to eternal life, to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who sent. Father, thank you for the message of life, the enjoyment of life. Father, we've been thinking about the riches of your grace and the fact that you've given us eternal life to know you. Thank you for the way your son presented you, offered himself as the one revealing you, and for the, the portrait in the apostles where they've rejected him. Father, don't let us reject the message of the one who is the only way, the truth, and the life. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. Father, we love you through your Son. We thank you for demonstrating your love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we ask that you'd strengthen us, not just to rest on the fact that we'll go to heaven when we die, but to rest in the gift that you've given us to live right now of eternal life, to know you. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.